so we kind of got to see what worked and what didn't work. And we figured if we followed a similar playbook, you know, keep the work short but not shallow, leverage smart data visualizations, and really focus on the intersection of business technology and politics to talk about media, I think we thought it would be successful. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2021 and welcome to this, the first episode of Media Voices for the New Year. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Fuster. And I'm impressed that Chris actually managed to sound enthusiastic <laughs> after the week that we've just Listen, had. I'm trying my best. Good job, All right, man. I'm barely holding on. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I was also quite impressed with the enthusiasm. <laughs> anyway, so a little something to look forward to. Um, that extract you've just heard is from Sarah Fisher, who is Axios's media reporter. So I talked to her about her process for crafting a thoughtful, informative newsletter, whether Axios' smart brevity model can work for local news, and what lessons she's taken from covering media companies that she applies to her own work. And talking of things we're looking forward to, how excited are we to announce the shortlist for our Publisher Podcast Awards in short order? Yep, 27th of January. It's uh, intimidating, as ever, just the sheer quality of all the entries and the volume of the entries this year in particular. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm really looking forward to that because obviously we're big podcast boosters. We want to share the good work that our fellows in the industry are doing. And so I think that that date can't come soon enough, really. So well, that's um... actually a couple of weeks to get it done, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to tune into that on that, that'll be, uh, well, I guess we'll be releasing it first on Twitter at PubPod Awards at 12pm on January the 27th. As long as for some reason we don't get banned by Twitter. That is an amazing segue. Oh, see, Peter, see, prizes for Peter. This break did us the world of good. If Woo-hoo. Peter can just like toss off a segue like that without even thinking about it, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> so obviously the big news this week is that Donald Trump, the ersatz president of the United States of America, has been banned from not just Twitter, but Facebook, Twitch, TikTok, Spotify, Shopify, Instagram, basically every platform that you can think of. <laughs> Shopify. Shopify, I know, yeah, what's the point? Where am I, I going <laughs> to buy my MAGA hat now? And like Esther was saying before we before we began, we could talk about this for days and days, but really this is a media-focused podcast, so we're going to keep it limited to the implications this has for publishers and the media industry as a whole. A little bit of context, so obviously following the attempted coup in the Capitol during which five people died, the platforms have finally, finally said enough is enough and they've banned Trump. I, um, I, I, don't, I don't know how I'm doing this, but do we have to state that this is the attempted coup at the beginning of January, just yes. in case anything else happens? <laughs> I was going to say, it's not even that much of a time, like a, a, like a time capsule, because it could happen again within the next three days. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so it's on yeah. the 6th of January. <laughs> <laughs> um, and since then, Twitter in particular has been slapping down Trump's attempts to get back on and circumvent that van, that van, and circumvent the ban by uh, any means necessary. Yeah, so in almost all the cases, the straw that broke the camel's back was that um, Trump allegedly used their platforms to incite violence, again, which is uh, a violation of their terms and services. So what what was, I suppose, the initial reaction from people and publishers on Twitter beyond just, oh my God, it's finally happened? Well, it was Facebook that went first, wasn't it? Because as soon as Facebook banned him, everybody was sort of then watching for Twitter to do the same. 
it did take it took about a day afterwards yeah. for Twitter to do it. Because Twitter, Twitter had just a twelve hour ban on Trump. They had that twelve hour ban initially, which was I suppose almost like the the inciting incident for the rest of these bans to come in. But yeah, yeah Twitter didn't do it permanently for about a day after everybody else did it. But the the, the reaction the reaction to this is, has you know splits down the lines that you would expect it to split down. There's a bunch of people saying that this is infringing on freedom of speech. There's other people saying this is just cynical. Facebook and everyone else on Twitter is doing it now because the committees that will be looking at the regulation of their platforms are now all Democrat-led. Well, we're saying that. We're saying that. Um, and, I, you know, there's other people saying, rightly, about time and how come, what, what you know, other than the fact that there was this actual violence and people sadly died, what's different about what Trump did in in the in the uh, run up to this than he's been doing for the last four years? And that's yeah, a definite yeah. This this is where I thought the well. reasoning was really interesting between the two. So so Facebook when they put theirs out, Zuckerberg put out like a big statement saying that it was given that there was just two weeks left to go and given the very real risk of escalation. That's why he'd made that decision, not not anything to do with anything particularly he'd said. Whereas Twitter did like it was it was a I don't know if you guys read that. Did you guys read the breakdown? Yeah, I read it earlier today again just to get my eyes across it. It was quite weird. Like they picked out two tweets. This is after the twelve hour ban. As soon as he was unlocked, like he started up again, and they said that they sort of dissected these tweets and were like, "Oh, this is why we this is why these go against our terms of service." And I can remember like you know we were all messaging at the time, being like, "Well, I mean, okay, fine," but then. You know, he he was messaging over the summer, being like, "When the looting shut starts, the shooting yeah. starts," and that was apparently not against your terms of service. So it's, it was it was very, it, yeah, it was very much like, "Why are you applying those parameters now?" When actually, loads of stuff he's done in the past has gone against that. Okay, I, I found well, face, Facebook's arguments were a bit more reasonable in that sense. Did they focus on any one particular statement? Yeah, it was it was two tweets he put out after the twelve hour ban. What was that? What was in there? I don't think I saw that. Uh, you have to give me. Minutes look. Yeah, no worries. The only uh, one I saw was that he wasn't going to be at the inauguration, and everyone in Scotland's yeah. like, shut, shut Prestwick Airport. Don't, don't let him fly into the golf course. So, yeah, so there were there were two tweets that they said, um, and they gave a you know a comprehensive analysis of their policy enforcement approach on these tweets. The first one, as soon as he was re-released on the eighth, he he said. Um, you know, patriots who voted for me will have a giant voice long into the future. They won't be disrespected or treated oh, unfairly. I did see that. This is, he said, this is just the beginning. Something uh, like that. It, it, it was along those lines, but it wasn't... Um, <laughs> given some of the previous stuff he's tweeted, it was fairly innocuous. Yeah. And then the second tweet he put out was, to all of those who've asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January the 20th. <laughs> yeah. Just I remember just, <laughs> I was just reading those two, like, I, they're not... Uh, no, comparatively. So hands up, do any of us do any of us believe that had he done this exact situation, had there been an attempted coup last year, this time last year, that any of these platforms would have banned him for exactly the same situation? Temporary bans, I think, yes. Yeah, I think temporary bans. I don't know though. You know, they've they've been winding themselves up to it. They've been taking stronger action, but if he was still in charge and the Republicans were still in charge, then I I doubt it. So anyone that's talking about regulation around, you know, like the clause two thirty, that's about being a publisher or not being a publisher, that's wrong. That that's yeah. not what this is about. No, or at least it's not the reason that's been given. 
Uh, they have the they have really covered themselves here by saying this is ex- explicitly a violation of T's and C's. Yeah, because yeah, I mean the, the the right to free speech is the right for the government not to come yeah, down shut on you, you down, for, yeah. for disagreeing with them. Whereas actually, that's not that's not the right for you to use any platform you want to say anything you want. Well, no, it's not. The call about uh, I can't remember where it was. Maybe New York Times. The right of the right to free speech is not the same as the right of uh, free reach. Yeah, that's the good. idea of amplification. Because we've seen this before, haven't we, with publishers being held liable for things that have appeared in comment sections. Yeah. So mm. in that sense, it is sort of a, it's not a free speech issue, but it is one about who is resp- ultimately responsible for content that gets published through UGC. Well, actually, I think that is fundamentally the issue for publishers out of this, mm. is what are publishers, you know, whatever regulation comes in, what are publishers going to have to take responsibility for because Trump can go away and he can play golf and he can go to Mar-a-Lago or he can set up his own uh, media network, he can do whatever he (laughs) wants, but all of these people that voted for him and all the people that, you know, support what he's pushing, the agenda he's pushing, they're still going to be there They'll still be on Facebook. They'll still be on whatever. Oh, Twitter. forget that. They'll still be on. I was talk, come up who I was talking to, but somebody from the Financial Times was like, "We get abuse within the Financial yeah, Times absolutely. comment section." Yeah, it's like it, these people will exist anywhere. But there's there's a kind of interesting point leading off this, and that is that even if so, the the two tweets that Trump put out when he was unbanned temporarily, I didn't read about on Twitter because I blocked him for my insanity. I read about <laughs> them in newspapers. Yeah, and this is the thing: is that if and and I've seen loads of stuff on about Parler and what people are saying on Parler because news agencies are reporting. So is this but that, the, that's the platforms not, can do what they want to yeah, suppress him? But publishers have got a huge responsibility here. Well, that's they the word, isn't it? It's got, responsibility. The responsibility. The, the responsibility is still to report that stuff. Is how they report it that's a problem. But it's then if if Twitter have said we don't want this on our platform and publishers are then posting screenshots from before it was deleted. That's I. I but that's that really well, is a city. Yeah, so I think you can put it in context. Yeah, exactly. I also think there's there's an interesting one there. We've we've put together a couple of talking points, and the first one is, you know, should these pl- should platforms be the people responsible for keeping these tweets up and accessible, so that people can put these in context, or is it ultimately because I know that uh, there are organisations, third party organisations, that effectively manage these archives so that there is a historical record of them, so. If, as Esther says, you know, we are concerned about the amplifying the reach even through, you know, reporting, do we not have a responsibility to keep these tweets up anyway so that people can actually see what we're talking about? Well, not no. keep them up. <laughs> no, sorry. I don't mean keep them up. I don't mean keep them accessible. Yeah. But sharing it should not be possible. <laughs> so you're saying Commenting it should be like... Commenting on it shouldn't be possible. It should just be there oh. like an artifact. But that's that's been Twitter's policy for the last Absolutely. couple of months Twitter, on this stuff. Well, I think Twitter's it, right on that. But it's not it's not stopped some of it. You know, he no, he, that, he can then say that, he can he can tweet March on the Capitol, and if nobody replies, they'll still go and do it anyway. But the uh, but Twitter is not the problem here. Not for these nutcases. They don't <laughs> they don't spend their time on Twitter. Um, Trump did tend to use Twitter as his primary out, like his way of outreach, which yeah. I think is why. It was such big news when Twitter initially did that twelve-hour ban because that mm. is his voice. Yeah, I don't know. I just I don't think Twitter's really the issue now. Oh, um, I don't. I, I know, completely I agree that right. it's not okay, like the so main. Trump, absolutely, Trump used it as his megaphone, but the 
grassroots element of this is going to continue in all sorts of closed groups. It's going to continue in all sorts of little nasty corners. And, you know, one of the tweets that I saw that I thought was really, it was it's sad in a way, was that it was someone who was researching these groups, mm. uh, you know, the extremist groups on social media, said, thank Christ, the rest of the world now actually sees what we've been seeing for the last four years and longer. You know, there's a, she saw it as a real reality check. Well, there was, wasn't that, that piece of research that basically said the vast majority of people who joined these extremist groups on Facebook had been recommended them. Yeah, this was the Facebook this itself. was the Roger Minami piece. He he did a piece for Wired. It's sixty four percent of the time that a person joins an extremist group, it's not because they've looked it out; it's because the platforms recommended it, and that is a massive, massive problem, and that that needed addressing five six years ago. And that's yeah. the cynicism that underlines particularly Facebook, YouTube and Twitter maybe, mm. Twitter, maybe not so much because you don't have the same sort of group structures, but mm. definitely Facebook and YouTube. So then for publishers, do we think the, <laughs> I mean, what is the key takeaway here? Because obviously it's new incumbents coming in, presumably won't have such an antagonistic relationship with much of the press, but then... I think what I think that, that there needs to be an evaluation us? of what what is pub, like what are what is the media's relationship going to be with like with Trump going forward because he can quite is he can just you know his, his supporters aren't going away in two weeks and I think it's that thing that that he he can and will if he wants to continue to incite this kind of violence so I I don't think he will. I think once he's gone no, he's gone he oh I don't no I don't think he's the issue uh, he's a I I think he's a massive issue. (laughs) He's a front man. He's like it's like Robbie Williams leaving. Take that. (laughs) There's a bunch of. I'm sure. I'm sure Robbie Williams really appreciates that direct comparison too. (laughs) Someone who incited fascist riots. Yeah, there's loads of people who still went on and bought Robbie Williams. Right, but what if what if he decides to run fascist instead? (laughs) (laughs) What what you know? What if he decides to run in four years again? You know, there's. This this is not a problem that's going away, and if nothing else, that family will be looking to monetize, you know, book deals, TV shows, all sorts of things. So th- there is a there is going to be a huge responsibility here when he's no longer president. How what what is the decision going to be like on reporting what well, he says? Hopefully, he'll be in jail. So, that's, so much of this is just what we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's just years a, a bigger flashpoint. Yeah. So how pa- are we only ten days into twenty twenty two? One. And some good news for publishers on the back of Trump's imminent departure. Um, they are expecting advertisers to return after whatever data is we're approaching. Uh, so the idea here is that um, Biden is looking like a more, quote, brand safe president and that this will relieve some of the pressure on keyword block lists and generally make advertising on news as a category a little bit less controversial. Yeah, so uh, there'll be something else. What, that that genie's out the bottle, I think. There's still plenty of time for Brexit to completely screw up. Honestly, I don't think we should even be called... This isn't going to work, saying it out loud, but we shouldn't be considering this 2021. We should be considering this 2022, the sequel. Not 2022, but 2020, part Part two. two. Part two, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. Actually, talking about the new year then, on New Year's Eve, National World bought JPI Media for $10.2 which is a fraction of what it was formerly worth. And National World, National World PLC boss David Montgomery outlined a plan to decentralise JPI Media and shun irrelevant or clickbait stories. 
that is a hell of a road back. You know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of actually of decentralizing it for the last couple of years, that has been their primary focus. It's really interesting to. This was a brilliant article in Press Gazette that I thought it was just interesting to see somebody actually explicitly set out that they don't think the one size all fits approach to local news works. It's like, well, yeah, we've all known that for quite a long time. Yeah, it's just it's actually getting buy in from shareholders and people who you know you can sort of say, well, look, this requires investment. Yeah, he's not. That- said, he's not said how much he's going to put into it yet. Uh, in other deals that slipped in over the break, Amazon is acquiring podcasting network Wondery for three hundred million dollars. Um, this is a kind of first acquisition that they've made in podcasting since they announced that they were going hot and heavy on podcasts last year. Yeah, I wonder if this has been forced by the fact that they knew otherwise Spotify would buy them up, would just buy up every single <laughs> player in the game. Yeah. Some good news for Reach as it has announced that it will outperform its. 2020 expectations after revenues from its digital divisions surged 25% in Q4. Although I have to say, this story, <laughs> this story was a tiny bit confusing because um, their operating profits still aren't looking great, but no. I think ahead of, well, they're looking better about, than bad market expectations. This says more about 2020 expectations than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and a shout out to the Reuters Institute's Predictions for Journalism, Media and Trends 2021 report. Um, The key takeaway this year is that 2021 is likely to be a year of uh, economic reshaping with publishers leaning into subscription and e-commerce. We could probably have said that fairly confidently towards the tail end of last year, but it's good to see that this is now evidence that publishers are taking alternate revenue streams seriously. Nick Newman says it very eloquently. He does. Sweet. Things can only get better. Actually, you can't say Oh, don't that, say that. You? No, sorry. Don't well, you heard it here that. first. Everybody, Edit Peter that. has jinxed the year. Edit that out, please. <laughs> Richard Sharp, former Goldman banker and, predictably, a Tory donor, has been announced as the new BBC chair, succeeding Sir David Clemente. I don't even want to get into this one. <laughs> That's fine, we can move on. I hope they look after, you know, that's basically two Tory donors in charge of the BBC. I hope they look after the BBC, but I don't have massive confidence. Uh, I'm worried about what that says for, you know, letting the market decide the future of the BBC. Whereas we've seen just last week that the BBC has launched its own, basically, school, homeschooling yeah, programme, yeah, yeah, which Netflix wouldn't have done. Nope. You wouldn't have seen, you know, a paid-for service do that, so... I don't know. Good on good on the BBC anyway. And Meredith's Travel and Leisure has been acquired by a timeshare resort company called Wyndham Destinations for a hundred million dollars over the holidays. So this is this is quite an odd relationship looking at it. But Meredith will continue to operate the title under a licensing deal, while Wyndham will basically use it to enhance its travel club relationships. It was quite quite unexpected. <laughs> I love that story though. I mean, it's a weird one. I get I give you that. But these guys have got like two hundred and eighty resorts. Uh, and they're going to use this magazine to reach out basically content to marketing. Customers. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, but it's it's more than content marketing because if Meredith is still producing the titles, you would imagine they'll still have a you know some level of editorial uh, value in them. So yeah, I'm I'm like I'm not against content marketing and you know like private companies like this acquiring magazine companies, provided that there is you know it, it because ultimately the, if the quality dips. Then you know that's a result yeah, of them doing it wrong. Exactly. Yeah. No, I like this one. Um, you know what else I like is a 
I've seen this really newfound appreciation for Wikipedia, and there's a really, really nice article, actually, which has been published on The Economist, we'll link to it, which is all about how its reputation has never been higher, people really appreciate it, and even though, obviously, it's still... It's effectively an ongoing fundraising thing because it's you know almost entirely supported by the public, and I just I just really like it. I think it's um, that democratization of information gathering, although it is open to abuse at times. I it's, it's still shonky at points sometimes, but also, but it sort of corrects itself because there are so many people doing it. It's it is a fantastic resource. Um, it, I actually signed up today to give them a monthly donation off the back of this article, so I think it's uh, yeah. I'm just really glad to see it. Do you remember the good old days when we weren't allowed to use Wikipedia as a source in school? I do remember that, yeah. The thought of using Wikipedia as a source of anything when I was in school. <laughs> <laughs> this week I spoke to Sarah Fisher, Axios's media reporter. She writes their weekly media trends newsletter, which has just hit 100,000 subscribers. So she's been at the helm of the newsletter since its launch in 2016. So I started by asking her whether this was a target they'd always had in mind from the start. I think it was more of the fact that we would start and see how it would go. And we did have a formula that we wanted to follow, which mimicked some of the other newsletters that we had already launched. We had launched a health, three others, I think, before mine, a health, a tech, and sort of a general newsletter in the morning. And so we kind of got to see what worked and what didn't work. And we figured if we followed a similar playbook, you know, keep the work um, short but not shallow, leverage smart data visualizations and really focus on the intersection of business technology and politics to talk about media, I think we thought it would be successful. And um, are there changes you've made since it launched that anything significantly different in the way that you do it now from how you started out doing it? Yeah, I think we focus more on breaking news than we used to. And part of that's just because we've matured as a company, I've matured as a reporter. And so we have a bigger audience that people want to come to us to tap into and to break news in. So there's a little bit more breaking news. I think we are still mostly, however, in the newsletter focus on big trends and analysis to help people do their jobs. I'd say the last thing is that we've noticed uh, length really matters, even though it's a weekly newsletter. When I first started publishing it, we were around 2,000 words, and now we're really aiming to be closer to 1,500 words a week. It doesn't mean I publish less items. It means that I just publish shorter excerpts of stories that publish to the website and link out. I mean, that's that's a more traditional way of doing it, isn't it, where you you have a bit less than the newsletter, and then if people are interested, they'll click out to it. But that's that's definitely not something that Axios used to do. Not as much. We do it more so now. And I think what's helpful is that it provides people who are interested in a particular item or subject to link out and go deeper, but it also gives them enough exposure to it so that they can learn about it, even if it wasn't something that they thought they really cared about. So for example, we've been writing about the rise of you know, audio advertising for a long time. If you were a digital media executive that had no presence in audio, you know, dynamic ad insertion in podcasts didn't really matter to you. But we wanted you to know about it because we thought that in a few years' time, it would matter to you that most newsrooms, digital newsrooms, traditional, would get into podcasts. And that's turned out to be true. Heading into 2021, I think most newsrooms care about podcasts. So that's always been the strategy is give people enough content to give them exposure to things that we think should be on their radar, but give them the option to go deeper or not go deeper depending on their interest. 
Yeah. And when you are shaping your coverage, because I, I think, are you still the only report, uh, media reporter at Axios? Yes, but I heavily rely on a lot of my colleagues to help me. You know, a lot of the coverage that I do, let's say if it's around misinformation, we want to talk to cognitive and behavioral scientists about the spread of misinformation. I'll work with our science editor on that. Or if I'm covering some of the social media platforms and their negotiations with publishers, I might talk to our tech policy correspondent who knows a lot about copyright. Uh, again, if I'm working on a big media deal, I'll work with Dan Primack, our deals editor. So even though I'm the only media reporter per se, so much of my coverage is crafted in conjunction with the expertise of different beat writers at my company. And that means you can keep the coverage broad rather than kind of getting sort of particularly focused on a, on a beat, which I mean, is quite easy to do in media because it's such a huge area. Yes, when I start, I mean, I always have really cared about advertising. I had a career in ad sales before I was a reporter. And when I started out, I loved that focus on advertising. I felt as though that was an area where we could bring depth to a otherwise broad topic area. But then we had Cambridge Analytica and a bunch of privacy focused scandals. And a lot of the big tech companies, a lot of people stopped talking about ad invasion. So it really forced me as a reporter to start to think about other focus areas that we could dive deep into. And it's ironic because now ad tech is hot again. The publicly traded ad tech companies are doing really well. People are trying to figure out how to do dynamic ads, uh, digital ads for television and radio. So I look forward to bringing that more into the coverage in the next year. But yeah, for a few years, we had to really kind of shy away from that. Do you have a particular uh, type of person in mind when you're writing for them? Um, I mean, 100,000 people is, is a lot. You must have quite a variety of job titles. But are you targeting sort of particular senior time short people? Or are you targeting ad execs? Or, uh, yeah, it, it, when you're writing, sort of who, who do you have in mind when you write for? When I was on the business side and I sold advertising, I felt as though a lot of the coverage did not cater to me which is your average everyday aspirational employee in media and advertising. It was either too catered to the power players. So, you know, what did this very top executive eat for lunch at this top secret meeting with another heavy hitter? Uh, or it was too, too, too niche, which is like some of the ad trades. Um, which is very helpful. But again, I was looking for something that was authoritative, not over my head, not too insidery, but at the same time, not too technical. So I'm thinking about anyone that does media for their job that, to your point, is time constrained, but doesn't want to be spoken down to, doesn't want to be spoken over, just wants to be spoken very plainly to in order for them to do their job better. And I saw that as a white space in the industry. I didn't see many newsletters that were catered to that type of, you know, again, aspirational professional at any level. And I'm very particular about that. I try to use as plain of a language as I possibly can to explain some complicated things. So for example, I want a CEO with very limited time to be able to understand some of the complicated infrastructure around something like ad tech or whatever. But I want to be mindful of their time. So if you do it using first grade language, that's actually really beneficial to them. And the same thing goes for, you know, an intern at a new media company, I want to be able to explain something, a trend to them that'll make their job better, um, make them do a better job. 
and explain it in really simple terms. So it's catered, I guess this is a long answer for you, but it's catered to everybody. But the goal is to make it consumable so that you could do your job better. Um, it's not to necessarily make it sexy or make it um, hyper entertaining. It's to be a utility. It does tie beautifully into my next question, though, which was actually about what it's like writing in that style. Like, is that quite a discipline to be able to just you constantly got to be stepping back and saying, you know, would somebody who doesn't understand this quite complex procedure actually understand what I'm saying about it? Like, is that something you've, you've a style you've evolved over the years? It is. I've gotten better at it. My boss, Mike Allen, is the best at it. He can take a very complicated topic and distill it down in a way that's not only uh, easy to understand, but also interesting. I think that latter part is something I need to work on is not just making it easy to understand, but also make it interesting. That's what's really challenging, especially when you're talking about some of these wonkier topics like, um, you know, deals and valuations and technology and policy, etc. cetera. Uh, I think the North Star is, I always ask myself, and my bosses have told me this, how would you explain it to your grandma or a good friend at a bar? How would you explain it to someone that is close to you? And that is something I think about a lot before I start writing. Yeah. Is there, have you got any guidelines around sort of what, what is too long or what is too short for a piece? Because I, I notice it, it varies quite a bit in length on, on the media trends. Depends on the item. The top item I try to give a little bit more space to than the others as a signal that it's the most important thing. It's the one big thing. So that'll typically be a little less than 400 words. And then the other items I try to make between 150 and 200 words. Again, the challenge is how do you take from a 600 or 800 word piece on the website and pull out what's the most important 100 words? Yeah. And a really, really helpful way to do that is to give yourself time and space. If you write something, I try to write out a lot of my newsletter on Sunday, at least in terms of where I want it to go. And then the period of sleep between Sunday and Monday really helps me to reflect and refine what matters and what doesn't. And then the same thing, the period of sleep between Monday and Tuesday helps me Tuesday morning to go in and say, you know, I don't really, really need that. I think with time, your mind can simplify things and you don't overreact to things as much. So it really just kind of comes down to, uh, you know, giving everything chance to breathe. So that must really help then that Axios is a lot less focused on publishing content online and being the first to it and more you've got this point on a Tuesday where you've got the whole week before it to kind of think about things. I mean, just, just from, from, a, from somebody who cannot write less than like 2,000 words, the idea of writing 150 is, is just incredible. Yeah, I think that our, you know, economic incentives, to your point, are not necessarily to be so traffic optimized that we have to jump on everything first. I mean, we, our business model is contingent upon being authoritative. And so giving reporters the time to do due diligence and to reflect is really helpful. And then in terms of writing shorter, I mean, it's harder than writing longer because you have to make tough decisions about what matters and what doesn't. It yeah. also forces you to use very simple language. You know, industry jargon takes a lot to explain. So if you can do uh, good explanations with simpler terms, you tend to write shorter. Again, though, it goes back to that old saying, you know, I would have written 
uh, a thousand words less if I had more time or whatever it is. <laughs> it does take time to be able to be thoughtful so that you can be shorter. Yeah. Uh, do you think there'd ever be an occasion where you'd think, oh, actually, you know, this um, this particular piece of news demands like a special email or, or, or something quicker and something a bit faster off the beat? Or does everything really benefit from just stepping back and, and breathing a little bit? We used to do that. I remember when Facebook changed its algorithm, I did a special edition of the newsletter the next day and our audience really liked it. I think we would do more of it. The problem is, again, we're still a startup. We have limited resources, limited people. I've pitched a few of them and I think uh, nobody's opposed to doing it. But the first question that's always going to be asked is, does your reader need this right now or could they wait for another day or two? And if they could wait, what resources could you bring within that day or two that could make it stronger? And that's helpful. I will say I do jump on news a lot. Like even though I only write my newsletter once a week, I publish like probably at least 10 pieces throughout the week between them. I don't know that everyone necessarily accesses them because a lot of times they just go on our site and I'll tweet them or they go in some of the other newsletters. And you've been involved in newsletters since, uh, I think you were involved in CNN's gut check um, before you joined Axios. So does the recent rush to them feel like a bit of a vindication of the work you were doing earlier? Or is it, is it a case now that everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and um, you know, somebody says newsletters are hot, so everybody's got to suddenly launch one? I wouldn't say it's a vindication because when we were doing that at CNN, and that was a little while ago, we were doing it because... My boss launched it, Michelle Giacconi and Mark Preston. My bosses launched it because they were trying to help out the television shows that the network sort of arrange their priorities and how they were talking about political news. And so it served a utility internally, really, more than anything. Um, I think the mad rush to newsletters now is interesting because the technology is so much better. One of the reasons that newsletters felt difficult back then was it was a lot of work. I mean, so much of the work, when I look back to that process, was the physical publishing of the newsletter, like going through and formatting and doing links. I, there's this, people will laugh if, if you know, you know, like what a WYSIWYG <laughs> is. But um, all of that was very time consuming and tedious. Now it's, I'm so hyper-focused on writing and reporting, and I barely think about the tech because the tech, Axios has a proprietary newsletter platform that's very effective. The tech is so good, I don't have to worry about it. But back then, it was very hard. And you cover media companies, you know, you've spoken a lot about you know, M&A and, and all that sort of thing. Are there lessons that you've taken from your time reporting on what works in media businesses that you apply to your own work or, or what happens at Axios? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for one, Culture matters a lot, and I'm seeing a lot of media companies that hit bumps in the road. It's because they didn't have a culture or a set of processes or priorities that helped to guide them through tough decisions, and that's hugely, hugely important. Um, we never had a focus on diversity as an industry in news media, and part of that is because the industry started out largely focused around a few newspapers and magazines, particularly in the Northeast, where the people who participated in those uh, ventures were predominantly white. They came from Northeastern states, which tended to be liberal. And that lack of diversity was a huge and continues to be a huge problem 
in not only navigating coverage and selecting the right stories and elevating the right sources and voices, but also just in how to function as an industry in a, a country that's so diverse. You know, it, it, it got to a point, we're still at this point where news media as a whole is so much less diverse than the workforce of the United States. I mean, how can you possibly be an innovative um, company or industry when that's your reality? So that's one thing I've learned is huge. Another thing I've learned is huge is funding structure really matters. And we saw a few years ago that a lot of companies took on tons of private investment um, from investors that were used to investing in companies that have very high returns that grow very quickly, typically software companies. And media and journalism doesn't scale quickly. It's not designed to. And especially, by the way, local is not designed to scale, yeah. right? It's designed to be for one particular community. And so that conflict of interests only became apparent after a few years when the growth trajectory wasn't meeting the expectations of investors. Uh, and I think, you know, the last big thing that I've recognized is that media companies were built, a lot of them, around an infrastructure, around products that are, you know, dying. And the transition to new products that are high growth areas, newsletters, podcasts, streaming, is more painful than I think a lot of people realize because they are strapped to legacy institutions and infrastructure like labor unions. Um, their real estate value is tied to a size of a newsroom and printing uh, staff and plants that don't make sense anymore. And so unwinding all of these decades old um, sort of infrastructure sets is very difficult. And that's one of the big reasons you're seeing these like massive newspaper companies flounder right now. It's one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of uh, television companies struggle, traditional television. And so I, I, I worry about those companies because you have a lot of strong journalism there and journalists, but without being able to pivot quickly, it's going to be very hard to support the journalism they create. And you mentioned um, local news just there. Axios has recently bought a digital startup, um, the Charlotte Agenda, as part of its push into local news, and it's doing newsletter launches. So at a time local news is under really quite immense pressure, is this a model that can work? I think so. I believe in it wholeheartedly. I think our company is doing the right thing and the smart thing. I think local news is interesting because they don't have the branding that big national news companies have mm -hmm. to be able to lure high volumes of consumer dollars subscriptions. And that makes it really hard for them to fully pivot from advertising. And advertising is, you know, transitioning a lot, obviously at the national level, but also at the local level. You know, if you used to run classified ads in a local paper, now you run them on Facebook. And I think that the promise for local news is how do we tap into the need? The need has not changed. People still want local news. Yeah. And how do we tap into the talent? The talent is still there. People still want to be journalists, even in local communities. And put those, marry those two things, talent and need, um, with a business model and you know an infrastructure that meets the 21st century. When you try to pivot a legacy news company, 
This is going back to what we were just talking about. And, you know, create high growth areas for them to transition to streaming, podcasts, newsletters. Oftentimes, it's too many pain points that it doesn't happen fast enough or doesn't happen seamlessly enough. And so what Axios is thinking is maybe we can go into some of these local communities and try to apply the lessons that we've applied to national news to local and create more jobs and serve people really well. Um, I think it's a mission that I'm proud of. I think it's something that will work. And I'm just excited broadly to be a part of a company that thinks that it's a priority because we could have very much doubled down on more national news topics and we will, it's a priority for us, but I think we see it as part of our mission as a news company to think about local. And it, that, that'll be, I know it, that you're just starting with four newsletters, but presumably if that works in those four regions, it's, it's quite quick to launch other ones in, in other areas if you've got a model that works in, in those four. That's right. And part of why, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of my company because I'm not yeah. an executive, but part of why I think the acquisition in Charlotte with the agenda makes so much sense is we also want to understand how do, how do small businesses um, work with local news? How do advertisers work with local news? Uh, how do communities respond to it? And so by bringing on the Charlotte Agenda's full staff of 11, which um, about half of them are in the newsroom and half of them are not, we can also learn from them some lessons that we can apply to these other four markets that we are uh, experimenting with so we can see where we need to make further investments. You know, if one of the newsletters that we launched, let's say in Denver, that's one of the four cities that we're hiring for, takes off like a rocket, we might want to start to understand, okay, how do we expand? How do we uh, fulfill the mission there better? And having a sort of mini blueprint with Charlotte Agenda, I think, will be invaluable to us. Um, and then our last question before our, our sort of final question. Um, I know, you know, media people love making predictions, um, but our, everybody's expectations for 2020 ended up being completely wrong. So are there, is there anything big that you're keeping an eye on for 2021 that you think will be dominating headlines in terms of media trends? There's a few things. I think the big foundational one is everyone's looking to understand how the advertising market bounces back. There are a few verticals that we don't think are really going to come back in the same way. You know, auto really is the lifeblood of local in in terms of revenue and as well as political. And it doesn't look like car buying is going to be a thing of local dealers anymore. So that's a huge, huge shift. Um, you know, we're also curious to see uh, how direct-to-consumer advertising changes the market and recovery next year. And the ad market will dictate a lot of the media recovery. So that's one big thing. Um, another thing we're looking at, you know, in terms of I also cover movies in Hollywood, is what's going to happen with theaters. You know, my prediction there is that theaters were becoming a very niche thing. It's where people who loved action and adventure films would go to the theater for the experience. But mm. things like dramas and rom-coms comedies, you would watch that in your home. I think that Delta is going to continue to get even bigger and we're going to get to a point where there are fewer theaters, but those theaters cater to a very specific type of experience, which is like a high impact action Mandalorian Star Wars type of, you know, drama. And then um, I'd say the final thing I'm thinking about is regulation. The Biden administration is expected to be a little bit tougher on big tech than the Trump administration. Um, not to say that the Trump administration hasn't been. I mean, the Trump administration's FTC and DOJ have levied some serious 
fines and now investigations into these companies. But the Biden administration will be responsible for helping to continue carrying them out alongside some of the states. And I think the outcomes of these investigations into big tech will have a huge impact on uh, media and entertainment in that the power imbalance between the two has been an open question for a long time. Uh, so those are the three big things I'm looking at and thinking about in terms of making solid predictions. The one thing that I think everyone is kind of curious about is the rollout of this vaccine. If we have enough uh, doses and the rollout goes smoothly and the economy opens mid next year, that's a very different trajectory for a lot of the companies I cover. If it doesn't, that's a, you know, a very bleak trajectory for a lot of the companies that I cover, particularly, again, in the movie uh, and yeah. theater industries. And the last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw or listened to that really affected you? You know, I recently watched the CNN documentary, Three Identical Strangers. It came out a few years ago, but I watched it the other night and that had a huge effect on me because it's really a documentary that talks about ethics in science. And today, so many of the things that we're dealing with are a crossover between ethics and science. Who should be the first person to get a vaccine? Should a vaccine be mandatory? In the news and information landscape, thinking about misinformation, is it ethical to tell people they shouldn't be able to post something on the open web? What is ethical to sort of censor or block versus what isn't? And so that uh, documentary, if anyone hasn't seen it, is a good way to exercise those muscles and starting to think about you know, innovation and regulation, ethics and science, and what that means for our society moving forward. Well, thank you very much to everybody for listening to this, the first episode of Media Voices for 2021 or 2020 part two. Please do tell anybody you think might like a weekly media news roundup to listen to, and do head over to our Ko-Fi page if you want to throw us a couple of quid to cover our operating costs. It's always incredibly appreciated. Would so... you like to say what the Ko-Fi page is? Ko-Fi.com <laughs> slash Media Voices. <laughs> so the best comment I've seen on the Trump thing is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yep. Talking about it with Con and Swap. But just like Arnie, the podcast is back and so is our daily <laughs> newsletter. That's three for one. <laughs> Three for three, our newsletter, like Arnie, is back. Uh, It's got four of the most important media stories, what we consider the most important media stories of the day, created by us and sent out at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, with a link, obviously, to the latest episode. You can sign up from the website, which is voices.media. And it is not too late to download our Media Moments 2020 report, where we rounded up the key events slash chaos and everything else that went on <laughs> in 2020. We tried our best to corral the chaos into <laughs> a couple of thousand words. Um, but we also had a look at where publishers' priorities are this year and sort of what some of the opportunities are. So it's, it's still very relevant um, if, if you can just sort of take looking through 2020 again. Uh, so yeah, if you, you can go to voices.media and it'll be there on the homepage. That's Media Moments 2020. But we are back, baby, and so next week we'll return with another fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and views from the media world this week. Maybe, maybe next week will be a quiet week. As if, as if you've just jinxed it. (laughs) Well, until then, thank you very much for listening, everybody, and do stay safe.
Come with me if you want to live. 